Today is Wednesday, August 11th, 2021. Welcome to the 319th episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams. I'm a historian of public health at the College of Charleston in Charleston, South Carolina. This week, I'll be the guest host of COVID Calls while the program's founder, Scott Knowles, takes a much needed break. My focus in the history of public health is on the field of epidemiology, a science unfolding in real time during the COVID-19 pandemic. This week on COVID Calls, I'm speaking with some incredible scholars who in some way work in the fields of public health and epidemiology. If you missed yesterday's episode, I had a terrific conversation about epidemic identity politics surrounding HIV AIDS, the origin of epidemiology, and pandemic archives with Dr. Jim Downs. Today, I'll be chatting with Dora Varga and Mandisa Mumbali. Just a reminder, you can usually catch COVID calls live weekdays at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Today, we're streaming at 10 a.m. Eastern to accommodate the vast time differences between myself and my guests. To find the program, go to COVID Calls TV, YouTube TV channel. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at COVID Calls, myself at Steer Williams, or Scott at US of Disaster. Please help spread the word about COVID Calls and feel free to send suggestions for guests and future topics to either myself or Scott. As of today, August 11, 2021, there have been 4,318,058 deaths from COVID-19 worldwide, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. It's absolutely sobering to me to think that in the past 24 hours since I spoke with Jim, 9,675 people have died of COVID-19 worldwide. In the two days I've been guest host of COVID calls, 19,042 people have died of COVID-19 worldwide. As a healthy person with currently a healthy family, my heart goes out to all those that have lost this immense amount of life in just two days. It really puts it into some perspective that I haven't thought about um, this entire pandemic. The JHU Resource Center reports today that there were 617,769 vaccine doses administered yesterday in the U.S., although that still only contributes to 51% of the U.S. population that has been vaccinated against COVID-19. As a way to humanize those numbers, I'll each day this week read a real-life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. That's something that Scott has been doing from the outset of COVID calls, and to me it's a powerful reminder of the ways that pandemics strike populations globally but we experience them as individuals in our individual communities. My story today comes from Durban, South Africa, reported yesterday, August 10th, 2021. Sadness and grief overcome KZN town after nine-year-old schoolgirl dies of COVID-19. Durban, an outpouring of grief and sadness struck the KwaZulu-Natal town of Ladysmith after nine-year-old schoolgirl succumbed to COVID-19. Shanika Balsarang, a grade four pupil at Asabal Primary, died August 1st, three days after she fell ill with COVID-19 symptoms. She was cremated on August 3rd. Scores of her fellow schoolmates and teachers lined up, some inconsolable with grief, outside the school as a hearse carrying her body made its way along for them to say their final goodbyes. The teary-eyed community released balloons into the air and through flower petals at the funeral motorcade. According to the Ladysmith Herald, Shanika and her whole family had been infected by COVID-19. A teacher at the school told the publication that Shanika had been taking care of her, the family and then suddenly complained that she was not feeling well. She was the family's only child. She fell ill on the Friday and on Saturday had died of complications related to the virus. Suri Kathan, department head for foundation phase at the primary school, told the Ladysmith Herald that she taught Shanika from grade R and that the nine-year-old's death was a huge shock. Educators and learners here can tell that Shanika had a heart of gold and she was one that would just make a person's day with her smile or her greeting. I don't think anyone here at this school did not know who Shanika was, she said. The primary school girl's death come 
at a number as a number of COVID-19 cases in KwaZulu-Natal driven by the Delta variant continue to increase. According to the National Institute of Communicable Diseases, KZN was behind second behind the Western Cape in terms of new infections and accounted for 21% of all new cases reported on Monday. Countrywide, there were 241 more hospital admissions in the past 24 hours, with a total of 14,820 now in hospital with COVID-19. So my guest today, who I'm really thrilled to speak with, Dr. Mandisa Mambali joined the Department of Historical Studies in 2017 from Stellenbosch University. She's currently at the University of Cape Town, where she taught social anthropology. She obtained her doctoral degree in modern history at Oxford University. Her main research interest is in health policy and activism, considered historically as interrelated phenomenon, both transnationally and within South Africa. Dr. Mambali has explored this theme in book chapters and journal articles on AIDS activism and policies, health, gender, and sexuality, and the politics of race and ethics in international health. In 2013, she published her scholarly monograph, South African AIDS Activism and Global Health Politics with Palgrave as part of their Global Ethics series. This monograph was completed during postdoctoral fellowships at Yale University and the University of KwaZulu-Natal. More recently, her work has analyzed transnational debates over apartheid and medical humanitarianism in late 20th century South Africa. She's also working towards developing a comparative historical approach to examining the global health politics of AIDS and COVID-19. My second guest is Dr. Dora Varga, who is Professor of History and Medical Humanities at the University of Exeter in the UK. Dora's expertise is on the history of epidemics, the politics of health, and Cold War history. Dr. Varga's interests span from the politics of epidemic management to public health systems and access to therapeutics. Her book, Polio Across the Iron Curtain, Hungary's Cold War with an Epidemic, was published open access in 2018 with Cambridge University Press. She's also written on the global infrastructure of the diphtheria antitoxin, the politics of vaccination in Eastern Europe, hospital care of disabled children in communist context, and about shifting epidemic narratives and historical analysis. Dora is currently working on a couple of really interesting research projects. After the End of Disease, which pushes back on conventional narratives of epidemic bell curves, and Socialist Medicine, an alternative global health history. She is also co-editor of the journal Social History of Medicine. It is such an absolute pleasure to have both of you here with me today to talk about COVID-19, history, epidemics, activism. But I want to start with just where are you calling from and what is the pandemic situation there? I know we're we're all sort of experiencing this a little differently from around the world. So um, Dora, why don't we start with you? Tell us where you're calling from and, and, and what the situation is in your local community. Hello, Jacob, and um, thank you so much for inviting uh, me. Um, I'm currently in Germany, in Berlin. Um, I moved here a couple of months ago, so I have immediate and recent experience with um, the UK and, uh, and Germany as well. I think um, right now the epidemic situation is about 35 to 40 per 100,000 um, in cases in Berlin. And there's a the vaccination campaign is not going as fast as they're hoping um, because the vaccine uptake has slowed down. So just now I read um, in the news that they're planning to introduce a fee for COVID testing, which has been free for anyone who has lived here, because you need that to go to um, <clears throat> restaurants or enclosed spaces. So you can either prove that you're vaccinated or you have had COVID in the past six months or you need a test from the past 24 hours. So the plan is, I guess, that if they make that um, that testing uh, um, no longer free, then people, that will be an incentive to get people to be vaccinated, so to make their home life easier. But there's a lot of debate about vaccine mandating through the back door and um, and uh, and a lot of uneasiness um, about that. And of course, the UK has been, you know, a very different experience. And I, um, it has actually made me made my move quite complicated. <clears throat> I had to come through France because um, because of the growing number of uh, of the uh, um, cases and the Delta variant. Um, a lot of uh, countries impose very strict um, uh, entry requirements from the UK. 
until recently. So it's been, you know, it, it hasn't been that visible in Berlin and, and uh, you can go anywhere. Um, so life is, is, uh, is quite okay, especially compared to lockdown situations. But um, there is still um, mandatory max, uh, mask wearing FFP2 masks. Um, so it's not any kind of masks on public transport um, and masks uh, within any enclosed space. So that's um, that's kind of part of life. How is compliance with with, with mask wearing? It's it's very high uh, from what I've seen. Um, yeah, so everybody has their masks on um, in their pockets and put it on, take it off. As um, even in in the you know open air stations, um, everybody's wearing them. Um, and they have, children have to wear them in school. Um, they get tested regularly in the beginning. So there's a lot of a lot of things um, that are very stable and haven't changed for a long time. So I think it, it's become part of, of people's behavior. Yeah, that's, I mean, that is such an interesting phenomenon. And especially for you being in the UK and now being in, in Germany, seeing that transition of, you know, similar epidemic context with the rise of, of Delta, but then seeing the response um, from everyday people and from local officials just being vastly different. I mean, what you're describing for Berlin sounds nothing like my everyday reality in Charleston in the U.S. South, where, you know, yes, there's vaccine hesitancy still. And, you know, I think that's something that, that I want to talk about in all of our different contexts, because I think there's a lot of similarities happening right now in the world in whatever stage we might be happening to be in, in this pandemic. That van- vaccine hesitancy seems to be one common theme. Um, but but everyday people willingness to accept really basic, simple precautionary measures like wearing masks indoors um, is something that is wildly different and controversial throughout the world right now. Um, so so I'm interested to jump in a lot of those questions, especially since you um, considering your research on the history of polio and, and children, which, you know, in the phase of the pandemic that we're in right now, that seems to be of big concern regarding new epidemiological data on the incidence and the virulence of COVID-19 and Delta and Delta Plus and Lambda in, in children who are unable to be vaccinated. So a lot to talk about. Um, Mandisa, let's bring you in. Tell us where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there. I mean, there's so much to talk about with what's happening with COVID in South Africa right now. Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, just in the middle of a terrible third wave, um, there were a very high number of cases in Houteng, where Johannesburg is situated, which is our main economic hub. And um, there it's starting to abate a lot more. But where I am in Cape Town, the West Cape, unfortunately, the case level is still very high, the death level is still very high. And it's pretty sobering what's going on. So I went to online a funeral of someone who's close to me last week. And the really terrifying thing was to see the hearses lined up, to see the other undertakers and families literally queuing up to do further burials. And it's extremely serious. But there's something else I wanted to mention, Jacob, which is this uh, situation with COVID, and thank you for sharing some of the stats earlier on, comes on top of our HIV AIDS um, epidemic which is still ongoing, right? I was looking at, again, over some numbers today. And what you can find, if you look at it, is there's 200,000 new HIV, there were 200,000 new HIV infections in 2019 and 74,000 AIDS deaths in a calendar year. And that's roughly the same as the 74,000 COVID deaths over a longer period. So what I'm trying to do here is blow up the myth that HIV has ended, uh, the crisis is over. That is not true where we are, unfortunately. So this comes on top of, um, you know, a great burden of other infectious diseases. And, you know, in an African context, you can't necessarily say that the stereotype of, oh, well, infectious diseases were, put, were placed under control in the late uh, 20th century, with the exception of AIDS. And then suddenly there was this, um, you know, epidemiological trans- uh, transition over then to chronic illnesses. Because what's happened in an African context is A, infectious diseases never subsided. And B, we've now got, you know, chronic diseases on top of that. 
So unfortunately, a number of people who are passing away from COVID also have type 2 diabetes, for example. So we're sitting on multiple, you know, overlapping crises. Yeah. And and add to that, you know, I was in um, uh, I was in the Western Cape in 2019 um, when I, when I saw you last, um, and to think about what's even happened in South Africa from 2019 until now, with thinking about you know ecological disasters and water crises and political crises that are happening in the last you know six weeks, and I think like all of these are are coming together to produce real crisis and real trauma in real and real time. So. Um, it is, um, you know, absolutely, as you say, sobering. And I think one of the things that that you bring up here that that I know I'm really fascinated by, and 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 want to hear um, what what you both have to say too is, you know, if you look back to throughout the last, let's just say, a hundred years in the history of public health and epidemics, it's never been as easy and tidy as what I think a lot of people in the in the public discourse think that like. The two or three leading causes of death are the two or three things that we tackle. It's never been a kind of one-to-one relationship in, in any way that's that straightforward or straight easy or, or that easy. And I think Mandisa, you 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 make that really clear and in, in, in some of those shocking numbers of HIV/AIDS of saying like here's an ongoing disease crisis that is in some ways very hidden. Um, you know, I think that that we certainly have seen that happen in the U.S. as well. I was talking to um, Jim Downs yesterday about that very same phenomenon. And if you open it up globally, it becomes even more prescient. I think the way that in, in the politics of global health, it's never as simple as like, here are the leading causes of death. And here's where we're going to funnel resources and funnel money. And I wonder if um, what either one of you have to say about that. Dora, you want to jump in? Yeah, thanks. And I, I was just thinking, um, Mendiza, that, that I think you and I should talk <laughs> a bit more after this, um, because these are exactly the, the, the kind of things I've been, I've been really interested in is how these, um, the, the funds and the priorities, um, shift without, you know, actually like almost, almost divorced from what's going on the ground because of the kinds of narratives we're telling, because of the kinds of ways we imagine, um, epidemics. That you know that are causing issues somewhere, but not other places. And you know what are the key places? Of course, um, entrenching these 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 inequalities and global inequalities, in also the 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 kind of comorbidities that these diseases are are uh, producing. So I think I think that is an extremely crucial issue of 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 that. You know when the 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 attention to an epidemic ends, and this is you know this is something that I'm kind of fearing with with covid as well that there will be pockets where it will be devastating and there will be also um plenty of people who will be just you know there left to their own devices or just you know kind of unseen or or un or not talked about or unaddressed because the 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 kind of the narrative has moved on or the attention has moved on yeah, that's, I mean, absolutely. And I think like in the global history of, of public health, what you see is so many diseases that, you know, Western public health officials by the mid 20th century, they, they start to champion and say that they've conquered, right? They become intractable diseases of the global South. And, and, and that's something that I think, you know, we as historians and scholars of public health recognize and we teach, but, but I don't feel that there is a big global consensus on, 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 that, on that kind of phenomenon. Mandisa? You know, in terms of, as I've written elsewhere, in terms of the whole end of AIDS kind of narrative, I mean, first of all, I was thinking about it this morning, and um, often there's a focus on sort of what I would term so-called celebrity activism. So I was thinking about, you know, um, Live Age, you know, historically, and then now Backs Live. And kind of how the narrative gets taken over, you know, in terms of focusing on particular individuals versus what I think can make change happen, which is community-based mobilization that is really targeted around the particular social characteristics of a community and that is made by people, developed by people themselves in a community autonomously. So it should be empowering. So something I'm concerned about is 
We talk about things like so-called lockdowns, they're public health restrictions to save lives. We don't need that military kind of rhetoric. Uh, We talk about quarantine. Is it not about sort of responsible management of travel? Instead of talking about, okay, so how communities decide what their priorities are and have locally tailored um, solutions. And I was reading something in Washington Post um, yesterday about a very successful um, Spanish language community-based intervention to encourage vaccination among um, a predominantly Latinx um, area in, in Maryland. And that made me think back to the treatment action campaign in South Africa and how they did um, HIV positive people themselves spoke to doctors, developed their own awareness materials, shared their own experiences of uh, being on ARVs. And that was a time where a bit like Donald Trump's pseudoscience, our president, Tarbo Beggy, was spouting things about HIV not causing AIDS, ARVs being poison. So in actual fact, with what happened with Donald Trump, I actually saw interesting parallels, you know, with our situation in South Africa historically. Yeah, I'm um, I'm completely fascinated by that, you know, as a current phenomenon of how we in our local communities are are dealing with COVID-19, particularly with vaccine hesitancy and with with local government, you know, public health measures. And, 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 and I want to throw something out to see if either one of you are seeing this in your community. Um, there's no doubt that in the history of public health in the last 100, 150 years, that community activism at the local level has made really important strides in curbing epidemics and endemic chronic diseases and, and creating awareness and, and, and real positive change. And, and here's what I'm seeing in the southern U.S. I'm seeing that where that activism is right now is from right-wing conservatives who are going to school board meetings, speaking loudly about not wanting mask mandates, not wanting lockdowns, not wanting any kind of COVID protection, not wanting vaccines. They're spreading myths. They're 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 act they're being extremely active. Um, and I don't see, at least in my communities in the in the US South, I don't see that kind of activism from a public health perspective happening in, in local communities. Dora, you want to weigh in there? Is there any parallels you're seeing? No, it, I think I think it's partly that's a very good question. I, of course, the you know one of the answers is that the right is uh, and, and especially the far right is, is very organized, so it's it's hard to keep up with that kind of organization and and very on point, uh, uh, um, simple you know messaging that that uh, that others might see as a much more complicated um, issue, and therefore that kind of communication is is a, and, and strategy might not work like that. But I, you know, just not even on the level of community, what I've seen, and, and this has been something that, that I've been discussing with one of my colleagues, Jessica Reinisch, who's in the UK, of the different way that also states or governments are engaging with, um, uh, with communities and, and or presenting um, society as a community. So you can see that it was striking for me coming from the UK as there was in the UK it was more about a kind of a little bit of a guilt um, uh, inducing uh, uh, communication and uh, and in the in Germany it's all about all the communication every poster you see reminding you that you would want you know you need to wear the mask is that we're doing this for each other to keep each other safe and that 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 is the that there is that kind of collaboration encoded into the into the communication of course there is a significant vaccine hesitancy, you know, um, because obviously not everybody is buying into that. And this is what is weirdly bringing together the far right and the, you know, far left. It's a, it's a weird uh, uh, expression, but, but people on the left um, who are very much against, you know, very suspicious about big companies and, and, and certain kind of like business interventions and globalization. And so these, Two very opposing um, political forces are kind of, you know, protesting together. Um, so it's also a way of bringing together um, these distant communities. So I think it's it's also I think useful to think about what the community is 
that that is that is engaging and and breaking down society into communities where a lot of the meaningful action can be taken but also thinking about community as a bigger and you know ideally as a as a global community which is also what is definitely not happening and i think that's i think i think national is right now where it stops um which is a huge problem obviously it is yeah and and, and i want to talk more um more today and, and maybe now is a good time about about that that very same that very phenomenon you know you know, as as historians and scholars of of pandemics and epidemics and of disease and public health, we recognize that you know, and I think you know, and there's I think there's widespread recognition at some cognitive level that we're dealing with a pandemic that doesn't know geopolitical boundaries, right? And yet, a lot of our reporting, a lot of our our everyday awareness of COVID nineteen is about our local communities. I mean, I, I'm even seeing you know in in the U.S. South in the last eighteen months that it's been you know the reporting is is hyper local even it's not even national it's hyper local let alone global and and in a real lack of awareness about real global trends and and what's happening with covid-19 um mandisa what's the situation like in south africa either about activism local um awareness global awareness about covid-19 i mean one of the things that strikes me about the situation in in south africa is just you know between environmental disasters and between political, um, you know, political problems and instability right now, that, that often those, I think, create disaster situations that, that make COVID-19, I might imagine, a very local phenomenon, even though we know it's a global phenomenon. Well, one thing I wanted to say, which is an old idea that I've been discussing a lot with colleagues and students, is the whole concept of social medicine. I think it's time for us to dust that concept off, developed by Rudolf Birkhoff in 19th century Germany. And it's an idea that anti-apartheid activists enthusiastically took up. So you meet people where they're at. Patients can drive things. Interventions can be local. You know, the health of a patient is about the health of society, the water they drink, where they live gender equality, all of these things start to come into play when you take a social medicine approach. And then instead of doctors patronizing patients and communities and telling them what they need, communities should actually explain or discuss what their own priorities are. So in South Africa, for a lot of people, their worry is about their food security and groceries. A lot of women, their worry is about sort of endemic gender-based violence in this country. Um, and also a lot of people feel that the state is indifferent to them or quite distant to them. So I was going over actually some of the latest studies on vaccine hesitancy. By the way, unfortunately, not enough of it, in my view, is qualitative. It's quantitative studies. And I'm not sure I can attest to the accuracy because there's such variation in percentages that one is, um, you know, offered. But one that I was very interested in talked about how when the um, participants were surveyed, depending on their demographic features, they talked about different things that would persuade them to get a vaccine. So, for example, in rural areas, a number of people who are poorer, for example, Black Africans, Africans, said they'd be quite willing to listen to traditional healers or traditional leaders. Whereas more affluent um, people uh, in urban areas often have more internet access, listen more to social media. Um, that applies in particular, according to the one study, to white Afrikaans-speaking people who are also much more amenable to listening to their community policing forums. And then in terms of urban Blacks Africans, ones who were African National Congress supporting, were more likely to listen to their ward councillors so remember UNAID said, know your epidemic. It has to go down to that granular level with, um, you know, organizing around um, the vaccine. But just one quick thing about global health politics, right, is a lot of people aren't even fully aware of what the WHO does. So the full definition of the right to health um, you know, the full definition of health is a state of complete, you know, social 
if I may, etc., well-being and not merely the absence of disease or infirmity, which means that social medicine is and human rights-based approach is officially baked in to international law and has been for a long time. But international law, as I've argued elsewhere, as regards the right to access to healthcare, there's no enforcement mechanism around economic, social and cultural rights. So even though COVID has killed so many people so quickly, you know, international health agreements, it's taken ages. Even now, the TRIPS waiver thing with the World Trade Organization, I'm not holding my breath for that to be resolved anytime soon. So, I mean, and then it's like the points of leverage because the WHO, people forget or aren't aware of the fact that all it's empowered to do is to advise, offer scientific advice to governments. As we saw in China, governments have to then invite them in. They're dependent on data that governments make available to them. We saw this also with SARS. We also saw how the initial global aid response was weak, was underfunded. So to address it at a global level, we have to go back to the nuts and bolts of looking at global health governance. And I'm afraid I was going recently once again through David Fidler's work on SARS, where he talks about a post-West, SARS having instituted a post-Westphalian approach to global health governance, i.e. That, that now it was supranational um, modes of um, responding to a public health emergency. And I'm afraid to say um, I don't see that in relation to this particular pandemic. I see like nationalism, I see xenophobia, I see vaccine nationalism. Yeah. And yeah, I mean, I don't really know what to say about finding a global solution, but we need to also dust off the history of AIDS that, you know, the global health um uh, the Global Fund for AIDS, TB and Malaria. Why isn't there equal funding for COVAX now? Like um, a lot of things that happen in, and what also maybe we need like more a specialized agency for COVID because I'm also worried that there's other work WHO has to do. For example, on AIDS, or on polio, for example, and COVID can't displace every single other epidemic infectious disease just because it's kind of more of an equal opportunities disease that is airborne compared to other epidemic infectious diseases that are kind of concentrated, like among the poor and marginalized. So I'm worried also that in the global health agenda in general, what, you know, are the other diseases going to become neglected because they affect the bottom billion of humanity, like the poor and marginalized. Yeah. And, and there, there's so much to unpack there. Thank you so much for that, Mandisa, that, that like really incredible view on, on global health politics right now. And, and, you know, I think what we're seeing is, is a pattern that, it, that, I, that I suspect is familiar to the three of us, right? Um, and it's, it's because, you know, there have been from the, at least the mid-19th century, public health officials and epidemiologists who have said, we need to take a global public health approach. And we need to understand pandemics as defying geopolitical boundaries. And, you know, and yet, there still hasn't, ever been a real consensus either about what what a real global health in in terms of real time that you're talking about mandisa real-time policies what that would actually look like and instead there's been people hand waving and screaming that we need a kind of global public health and yet it is reverted to to hyper nationalism time and time again um i want to i want to actually as a way to try to unpack this go back a little bit into a couple concrete historical examples. And, and the one I want to start with is, is Dora, your work on polio. So in, um, in June of 2020, 
Um, you wrote a, an essay with Jeremy Green of Johns Hopkins called How Epidemics End in the Boston Review. And I just, I love this piece so much. I assigned it in both my classes last year, and it's, it's one of the best that historians have written. And in that essay, you and Jeremy argue that so many of our hopes in ending COVID-19, um, and you're, again, you're writing in June of 2020, were in the promise of a vaccine. Um, but you argue, and I'm quoting, a closer look at one of the central vaccine success stories of the 20th century shows that technological solutions rarely offer resolution to pandemics on their own. Um, and, and that's June of 2020. And, and, and here we are in this very prophetic way reading that essay. And I read it again the other day in August of 2021, when vaccines are, are widely available in some parts of the world, although, of course, not all parts of the world. And if you look at vaccine access right now, it is widely disproportionate. Um, but if you even take the U.S. and Western Europe and, and parts of the world where vaccines are widely available and we still see these this hesitancy, Take us back to the story of polio, which I think is one that that in the in the mid twentieth century that we can use to really understand a lot of the same forces that are that are working in our world right now. In this, maybe you know what people are calling the third or the fourth or wherever we're at in this wave of of the COVID nineteen pandemic. Yeah, I've been I've been thinking a lot about that. Of course, as the the, the pandemic was unfolding and. And and it, it kind of echo, had echoes of, of of a lot of things that I've you know I, I spent a lot of time um, studying and and thinking about and there were um, s- several things that I you know thinking and uh, looking at historical precedents of vaccination in a situation where you have the common problem all over the world and that was you know of course different in in the number of deaths it was different in how it manifested um, everywhere but it had that kind of really strong power of afflicting children and making very visible, you know, long-lasting signs, like leaving um, long-lasting signs. So that was, you know, propelling a lot of collaboration. And just to, you know, throw a little bit of positive stuff into this really gloom and doom, because that's what, you know, that's what it is. Um, there, it did create collaboration um, between opposing political sides. So there is kind of a hope, and, and WHO was instrumental in, in uh, as a vehicle uh, of where where people could work together that would uh, otherwise wouldn't have been possible. So I think there is definitely a strong role um, uh, to be had for international organizations that, of course, have changed um, drastically since then and have been um, gutted in a lot of ways. But um, what happens, you know, you, there were two vaccines developed. And of course, I knew that even if we take into account of a very optimistic way of thinking about the history of technology, of how now everything's so much better and smart, you know, even on a progressive, you know, narrative, um, uh, it take, took years. It took many years, decades for vaccination to actually, you know, take hold and do that kind of work. So you have the, the first polio vaccine coming out in 1955. And partly it was a question of access. So there was a huge um, uh, lack of vaccines. There was political game playing of who, you know, how you can get it, especially if you don't have the funds for it, especially if you're on the other side of a huge, um, you know, Cold War. And, uh, and even if everything worked out, there were some instances where the vaccine just didn't work on a social level. So this happened in Hungary. Um, there was a huge uh, epidemic wave. They vaccinated, um, uh, they used the vaccine, apparently in very high like uh, coverage, and it didn't work. And so I started looking at, you know, what goes on into these vaccinations who, uh, and, and, and how we can think about vaccines and vaccination. And it really shows that, that complexity of, of, the, of, of the, you know, the logistics and the infrastructure and the, the society and the relationship between the state and the, and the, and the people who are receiving the vaccine, the knowledge that is circulating, the doubts that are circulating, the specific methods, the different kind of vaccines that are competing. And you have a second vaccine coming in, in the late 1950s, um, that is, for various reasons that I, <laughs> I will not go into because it will take um, a lot of time, uh, is um, uh, finished in a collaboration between the Soviet Union and the US. So this is the kind of collaboration you know, that makes possible, tested in the Soviet Union. And, uh, and that creates a lot of 
you know, doubts. And, as, and we can, you know, see that immediately, that, like a major um, uh, reaction to when, when all these different vaccines uh, appeared, which one are we going to trust? Which one are we believing? Like, are we taking for granted that the, these, you know, figures are to be trusted? These figures are not, but based on exactly what? Yeah. Right. Um, and, and people, um, in the case of Hungary, where people could choose which one, which vaccine they got and, uh, in, uh, which COVID, um, vaccine they got pushing away certain vaccines and demanding others, even if that means that they will be vulnerable for a longer time. Um, they cannot get vaccinated for a longer time. But going back to the, to the late fifties and sixties, you, you have this new vaccine. Um, that is easier to administer and, and it's, uh, there are arguments that it's, it works better. It's, um, uh, it's, it's a, it's a way to, to really, uh, put a stop to epidemics. In Hungary, it gets, uh, very quickly embraced because you have this situation in a very volatile political, um, uh, environment. And, uh, and it pairs. Partly, and this is, you know, where I'd like to come back to Mendes's point about social medicine and the, and a different way of thinking about society and, and, uh, um, and, uh, and health where the, the, the basis of how to roll out vaccine and the success of vaccination is inseparable from, from horizontal um, structures there with Red Cross volunteers knocking on people's doors and talking to them with, you know, the community health centers everywhere that are coordinating this. And the whole population gets vaccinated, has to get vaccinated in a matter of days, right? So, and they do that. And that's, um, that's kind of the whole infrastructure is needed for that. Um, Eastern Europe becomes, you know, <laughs> gets into quite good place in terms of polio sooner than, than other parts of the world, partly because of the ease with which these vaccines um, flow. And then the vaccines get this political meaning. This is, you know, this is a success of the political ideology. This is the success of the whole political system. And of course, the, if you follow the routes that the vaccine takes, you can map these socialist networks um, uh, Cuba becomes the first country in the Western Hemisphere to be polio-free, um, for you know, through this collaboration. An interesting thing is that as the as the the vaccine um, uh, travels, and it's uh, it, it kind of changes political meanings. Um, in Brazil, you have these national uh, immunization days that are all based on you know, Cuban um, data that was developed with Czechoslovak and Soviet virologists and, and vaccines, but it falls to the wayside until you get to the polio eradication initiative, which is a philanthrocapitalist enterprise. And this is where it's kind of coming from and the methods and the models. So there is, there is a lot of interesting and important, you know, interesting things going on with that kind of intertwining of the politics and vaccination. But this is, this, this is decades, right? Um, we're talking about decades and it's not only hesit vaccine hesitancy and it's not only, it's not only the availability of the vaccine. It's hundreds of other little things from the conversation between the physician and the parent or, or, or the vaccinee to the, are these syringes faulty or, you know, where do we get the, you know, can we keep it cold? Um, how does it get from A to B? Who's organizing it? And so on and so on. So there's, there's so many things going into it that just the technology itself, you know, it doesn't do anything. The substance in a vial, that's not where the boundary of this, of this technology is. It's, it's everything. And so when, you know, I was, of course, thrilled and very excited that, you know, and, and very impressed that this is, has happened so quickly and so fast. And, and it, uh, and it's quite unprecedented. I think this kind of rollout and, and, uh, response to, to an epidemic. But, you know, knowing that this in the best case scenario is, is we're talking years and decades and it will bring up even, you know, more and new problems, just like as Mendisa was, 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 uh, highlighting with HIV and with COVID and the comorbidities and, and the overlaps of chronic and, and epidemic. 
And so even, even if it kind of ends, that is also a kind of very problematic ending. No, that is, that is so incredible. Thanks. Thank you so much. And, you know, one of the things about reading, reading your book that, that really struck me is just how um, this, this narrative happens in Hungary about a success story of polio. And in, in like, that happens in the US too, right? That there's a we and our scientists, and then you put Jonas Salk on a pedestal and you say like, this was American ingenuity that solved the, the polio problem in the US. And to put that into perspective and the way in which like these heroic narratives of over overcoming a disease, they get entrenched in national questions of national national identity are something that like, I keep waiting for that to happen in the US with, with COVID-19. I think it eventually will. We will start to get some of those narratives emerging, those heroic narratives about COVID. But I think from, from this history that you've unpacked for us with polio, I think, you know, one of the, the real things that historians can offer right now is this like very prescient reminder that like we're just getting stuck in with COVID-19. I mean, we are dealing still with immediate trauma and, and, and really difficult numbers of daily deaths that are hard to process. They're hard for individuals to look around and to see here's my tiny little place in, in the world and then know and and, 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 and and humanize those big gigantic numbers of, of deaths, those daily deaths. Um, and I think what 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 you highlight in the story of polio is is like we need voices um, from historians of pandemics and people that have studied this to try to help us to one humanize those numbers, but two to realize that like the story of COVID-19 is not the story of 2020 or 2021 it's going to be a, a, a story that that continues for a very long time and it's going to be a story that changes over time it's not just as we know that the virus itself isn't stable it's an always changing adapting entity the the pandemic itself continues to change and continues to more and that's something that i think like i i, I the polio example and like the promise of the technology and then the heroic narrative that we put on the technology, it doesn't play out when you actually look at the history, right? And that's something that that your book is so brilliant at showing. But but I think like what it also reminds me of, and Mandisa, I want to pull you in here, is the way in which like the story of HIV AIDS is, is, is in some really powerful ways, maybe the other prescient story for how we might understand where COVID-19 might go in the next decade. So I want you to like maybe help us to think through like HIV AIDS is this amazing story and in particularly globally, but but especially in, in South Africa of uh, a disease of vis visibility and invisibility as 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 that disease uh, was recognized and then uh, continued. And as you mentioned earlier in the program, continues in, in strikingly high numbers today, yet is in some ways very invisible. Well, I think one of the lessons for me is, again, with social medicine, it, it's, it's sort of fashions in global health. Yeah. So sometimes treated like it's kind of this old fashioned stuffy kind of thing. But there's something else quite boring, which ties in with what Dora is saying, which is health systems strengthening. So one of the lessons from HIV AIDS is we now have tremendous combination ARV therapy but drugs don't work in people who can't take them. And medication has to be prescribed by doctors and nurses. And if there aren't enough doctors and nurses, or if the doctors and nurses are too far away, or if the clinic and the pharmacy is underfunded, you know, the patients who need, um, you know, that medication will not get it. But I think there's another lesson, which is also like I was alluding to earlier, we need um, more biosimilar versions of um, the COVID vaccines and more production in the global south, hence the issue of, 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 of patent waivers comes up. But I think, to be honest with you, sometimes I think about it, I feel like as humankind, we're kind of on a merry-go-round, you know? There's this pandemic, that pandemic, a global health uh, governance architecture that is not fit for purpose, no focus on actually a general improving health equity and health systems in the global south. Also, a lack of joined up thinking. So, you know, 
given um, the the uh, reality of zoonosis, we need to have a sustainable development or one planet kind of approach to thinking about um, to thinking about global health. By one planet, I'm alluding obviously to the interconnection between animal and ecological health and human health. We can't think about them as separate things, right? So I think what I'm trying to say is that we need more permanent fixes. But here with health systems strengthening, it's not that a lot of people haven't thought of it or that it hasn't been pushed by many different interests over the years. It boils down to what I would like to call medical capital. So all the private health insurers um, who rake in massive administrative fees and then who often in South Africa or in the US work in tandem with specialists or, 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 or hospital groups that also you know, work for the private sector, who then inflate the costs, who also then there's obviously the, the multinational pharmaceutical companies to inflate the costs of the medicines because um, they often are secretive about the price of drug development and overlook what is overlooked is the amount of federal US tax dollars invested in basic scientific um, research to develop um, new um, medicines. So I feel like, you know, we actually have to think about the social institutions globally that are blocking health system strengthening. Yeah. And I think the problem is also we can't pit different diseases against each other. This has been being said for a long time in global health circles. So then if you have a systematic way of looking at all of these infectious diseases, then we can look at institutional changes, changes to rules, budgets, timelines, and it's you know, and then be ready for the next one. Because do we really want to go through this again? I think you know, time has come. And because AIDS became like a poor, poor part of the world disease, yeah. this has gone on the back burner for far too long. Whereas I think now I'm hoping there might finally be political will. But I doubt it because I think medical capital is extremely powerful and enduring, particularly, you know, since the rise of the Washington Consensus. So, uh, you know, I don't know. Yeah, yeah, there's there's so much there. Thank you. Thank you so much for all that. Um, I think you're completely spot on. And I wish you were in some position of real political power. But I mean, but but that highlights some a couple points to me. One is like, where do we as scholars of public health fit into this? Because I think like you've identified in in the last two minutes, some of the central problems of global health and like where do we, what do we do as scholars? I think there's like, there's real questions about how we can be and are activists in our local communities, in our universities, in our cities, in our, in our nations. What kind of role can we play as scholars who have studied this extensively and, and where might we find that voice? That's one question. Um, and two is like, there's a, there's an old fashioned narrative in the history of public health that, um, that I think in many ways has been like, super, I don't want to say debunked, but like contextualized and complicated. Um, you know, like Charles Rosenberg long ago argued that like epidemics were these moments when they forced change on society. A big epidemic happens. Cholera strikes America in, in the 19th century in successive waves. And then people respond and then they implement things as a direct result of the epidemic experience because of the trauma of epidemics. And and I don't know, Mandisa, what, from what you're saying, like you're presenting a, a much more grimmer view of that. Like maybe epidemics aren't these galvanizing forces of social change. I think they have the potential to be. Um, I mean, I think we look around our world today and we're seeing with COVID-19 a, a major kind of reckoning about how, 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 how communities govern themselves. What is the social contract? I mean, I... Um, Living in a city without and starting a starting a, a university term without mask mandates and vaccine requirements, um, and sending my kids into public schools where other kids won't be masked and their parents probably won't be vaccinated, I feel like I we have totally failed the social contract of just like caring about other human beings at a really basic level of humanity um, at, at the local level let alone at a very big global level where we've seen like, you know, I, I talk to, to students in my history of disease and public health class, always about cholera. 
And and I refused for the story of, in the history of cholera just to be one of like, well, it was in Pandas successive waves in the 19th century, but then it was over because it, it wasn't over. It became an intractable disease in the global South. And, and that's the story of cholera because it's a real story. And, and, and you know, there's the story of HIV AIDS that you that you that you've worked so much on, Mandisa, I think is is, is another like really prescient lesson for us. Um, but I wonder if either one of you have either thoughts on like where what we can do as scholar activists to try to push back against these narratives, where we fit into our communities. And, and then this other big question of like, at the end of the day, what do what do epidemics really do to our communities? Dora, do you want to weigh in on either one of those questions? Or statements. Yeah. Well, um, well, first of all, I think you know, just going back to that um, point that you made about epidemics being a vehicle of change or not, I think it. I, I, I think more about epidemics as being kind of accelerators of if there is underlying problems and inequalities, it will make them bigger and graver. If there's already some kind of change going on or something um, uh, that, that that is already happening, it might. Amplified because it's, it gives a moment where that then you know can step up, but I think it in itself it doesn't do anything as any crisis. It just um, strengthens what's already there, either in the, the divisions and the and the inequalities, but also in if there are already existing you know something um, collaborations or, or or something some social movement going on, then that can give give it a, a boost. But as you know, as historians and academics, I, I've been I've been thinking a lot about this lately um, because I have been engaging. There, there is there is a growing interest um, from you know from from global health practitioners, from from healthcare practitioners about how to think about this and 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 think about it in in a bit more thorough and critical way, not just being in the moment. And I think partly, especially in history, I think partly that comes from that early part of the pandemic when everything was so new and everything was so uncertain and there was no information, right? And how does it spread? How do you treat it? What ha what do we do? What is the efficient way of, of, of dealing with this as a society, as a government, as a person, you know, in, in a family? And so without any kind of hook, you know, people started looking back for back, you know, maybe maybe some past pandemic or epidemic will will reveal answers. And that kind of, I think that that is a change that that happened. That there is a, a kind of openness to 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 uh, to history, which often, you know, in a in a in a popular level, translates to the lessons learned of history and um, or, or you know interesting tidbits. Um, but uh, I think that the key question that that I think we can do is is to show that that we can provide an analysis, an in-depth analysis of something. That we cannot do in real time because there's no time. It's moving on. It's it's you know we, we just have to like kind of survive and deal with it, and and it's moving way too quickly. But you know we have the luxury of time looking back and we can really explore it. And it's all because it's so complicated and it's so complex and there's so many actors and so many things going on at the same time. And then you know we can use that to to ask questions and to 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 help people ask questions. And to 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 serve as uh, as entry points for analysis of what you know what you can look at. How does something become invisible? What kind of what kind of people are we not considering? What kind of people? You know, where does this potentially can go? Right? So who gets forgotten? How do these meanings of disease change? And these are these are important. And I think there is. I I think at least that's what I found. As, also as a coping mechanism, I guess, because there is a sense of helplessness in this and, and you want to kind of do something and it's hard to do something if you're not medically trained, especially, and you can't actually just go and try to heal people. Um, and I would say that even in COVID, you know, that, that's also a frustrating experience because you oftentimes can't. But so, so kind of to, to, to do something is to is to open up these um, uh, new ways of thinking and and show that that also that that these the situation that that you know Mendisa so eloquently described has this historical trajectories. We need to understand how we got from there. Where did these social medicine you know ideas go, <laughs> and why? 
And, and what are the ideas that we've forgotten about? What are the practices that have fallen out of favor or they were politically inconvenient at the time and so on and so forth. And then, you know, I think, I think in a, in a nutshell, that's, a, that's kind of where I see that kind of activism go. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Mandisa, where do you see, I mean, so much of your own research focuses on health activism, but I wonder mm-hmm. like, where do you see as like, what is our role as, as, as health activists, as scholars that study this exact phenomenon um, in moments of crisis like this? That's a really important question. I want to build on what Dora was saying in that I'm writing something at the moment where I'm starting to think about a hazard of sounding a little cliched, the idea of the end of the beginning of the, of the COVID pandemic rather than the beginning of the end. So I think in a way now, because there is an effective biomedical intervention, which can substantially prevent transmission or, you know, um, most importantly, prevent hospitalization or death, that then gives to some extent uh, physicians, um, ourselves, um, scientists, um, breathing space to actually think about longer term social, cultural and political interventions. But the problem is, uh, so there's um, some physicians who are friends of mine and they were actually talking about the concept of an interwave. So basically the period between two waves sort of thing. And so even for them, like the kind of work that I would like to see, long term ethnographic, oral history research, also documenting the work they have done in a systematic kind of way is time consuming. And also ideally you have to be able to do it face to face. So there's a whole research agenda I can think of and a lot of other colleagues that we simply may not be able to implement, unfortunately, unless there is a substantial durable reduction in transmission, hospitalization and death. So, I mean, one of the things that I've been trying to do is public outreach. So I gave a radio interview the other day um, and um, I'm going to be giving a couple of other talks. I mean, my colleagues who work on Spanish flu have been really run off their feet and now Dora because she looks at vaccination. So as we go through different periods and I'm quite busy because it's 40 years of AIDS. So, you know, at different points, kind of different historians of medicine are busier than others. But I think us working together with policymakers, physicians and so on, it will come, but it will take time. Because like I said, I think that, you know, the flames are still being banned, as it were. So I don't know. But Dora, I really like what you were saying about science diplomacy. I think we need more of that where different... um, you know, scientists from different uh, great powers come together to, and, and other and middle-income countries, for example, come together to develop more scientific um, solutions. Uh, but I don't, Jacob, want to be sound like a massive pessimist. I think the TRIPS waiver is really important. I think there are local examples of successful efforts, like the one that I mentioned to you. And so we shouldn't give up. But the, the things that we're pushing back against are long-standing institutional society-wide issues and are, are just purely the innovation of a vaccine in and of itself is not going to fix those things, although it's tremendous, tremendous medical breakthrough. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I think like one of the things that, that you both highlight is like, it's so easy, especially, and I, and I want to say especially as scholars who study pandemics, um, an epidemic and disease in public health to be super pessimistic right now. It, it just really is. It's almost like, you know, you I, I, I open up Twitter and it's just like Twitter COVID rage every single day. And it almost feels like a vacuum. And I actually have been trying to put that um, my own experience into a little bit of perspective here, because I think like at once, I think there's there's I mean, the daily death counts and the daily hospitalization rates, which are going up right now. And this this new question about Delta Plus and new variants evolving and their susceptibility to unvaccinated children are really serious and grim, grim questions that I think like 
we we want and we need real like answers from the specialists on 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 those questions, right? But I think at the same time, like you're right, Mandisa, that like we also need to recognize like what can we do as individuals in our local communities to make positive change? And I think that's really important because I mean, I look around in just in the US to give that example, and there are some states whose vaccination compliance is over 60%, um, 65%. There are other states that vaccination um, uh, vaccination rates are, are low 30%. Like we need to be looking at communities that are doing well right now around the world, um, a vaccine rollout, vaccine hesitancy of community activism, um, and, and try to draw on that as, as examples for us to influence our own community. Because we are in a moment where, yes, the pandemic continues to change and evolve and adapt, um, and, and still kill people every single day and rip apart families in devastating ways. But we also, I think, can play roles in our communities that are really positive ones. And I think every example of past pandemics and public health shows that too. Um, and I think like it, it is really important that like, like we can be that voice as scholars of pandemics too. Um, not just the the grim always warning signs. So I think like there's some there's some real like checking of my own like privilege as a historian of public health that I that I'm that's weighing heavily on me right now personally. Um, and 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 maybe we need to have more discussions amongst historians of public health and, and activists too. So um, I, I I cannot thank both of you enough for joining me today on COVID calls. This discussion has been completely mind blowing to me and like in some ways, like really therapeutic, honestly, to talk with, with two, two amazing experts. So thank you both so much. Um, and I hope that that at some point as COVID calls continues that you come back again to talk with Scott, because there's so much more to talk about from each of your um, areas of expertise. Please um, join me in thanking um, Dr. Dora Varga and Dr. Mandisa Mumbali. Please check out their work, um, follow them, follow their research, follow their voices, their important voices. And join me tomorrow on COVID calls when I will speak with um, Dr. Lakshmi Krishnan and Dr. Lorenzo Cerviche. And we'll talk more about medical humanities, public health, and the state of the pandemic tomorrow at 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Mm -hmm.